Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. Welcome to this week's edition of Walk Talk. Today, my guest is Laura Fearman, BSN, RN, Certified Pediatric Nurse Practitioner, who is a pediatric skin and wound care nurse from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Laura and her colleagues were the author of the poster entitled, Using a Collaborative Team to Reduce Pressure Injuries Originating in the Perioperative Division. This poster won the Merit Award for the Practice Innovation category at the WOCN's 50th Annual Conference in Philadelphia last June. It also won an award for Best Evidence-Based Practice Poster at the AORN Fall National Meeting in October of 2017. The other members of Laura's team were Linda Abbott, Patricia Pazella, and Julia Langan. Thanks for joining me, Laura. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to hear about your project because my organization has implemented sort of a similar project, and I'm really excited to hear about how you all accomplished this this huge thing in your organization. So I was wondering, it looks from your poster like you weren't the only person on the team that did this. So I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about yourself and your background and then the other members of the team that implemented this project. Okay, well, my name is Laura Fearman, and I'm the pediatric wound anostomy pressure injury prevention nurse at the Children's Hospital at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics Organization. And this is a project that we have been working on very diligently the last several years. And like with most projects, it takes a village. So as part of this particular project, since we were looking at reducing pressure injuries that originated in the perioperative division, we actually enlisted colleagues that are educators in the ORs. We also got nursing leadership in the ORs and not just the main OR, but we also did the pediatric ORs and also the outpatient ambulatory surgery ORs. So we ended up with people from those particular areas, which was Michelle and Amos and Donna and Gail, and we actually got people involved from the recovery room areas also. We had Cormac O'Sullivan, who is actually a CRNA. So we kind of found out that the fact is that we really have to have that anesthesia kind of link, and it worked out really nicely because Cormac works with the College of Nursing, and he ends up actually working with the DMP students for the CRNA program. So we were able to, you know, work with them to actually do little projects as part of our whole larger project that we were working on. And then, of course, we had the adult WOC nurses, Pat Pazella and Julie Langen. And then Linda Abbott is not only a wonderful WOC nurse, but she is also our quality person So from that standpoint, we had the added expertise of of somebody from our quality area to work with us too and help us with all of our data. And then we ended up adding, uh, not in the very beginning, but as we got into the project a little bit, we added a plastic surgeon because it was seemed to be very important as we tried to kind of navigate these areas that we ended up having um, a respected surgeon that the other surgeons would listen to. 
And then what brought you to start this project in the first place? Well, we were having incidences with our prone cases and also with our cardiothoracic cases. So we were having a bump in our occipital pressure injuries and our long cardiothoracic cases. And we were also having quite an uptake in our prone cases and a lot of our neurosurgery, orthopedics. We have quite a, a nationally known group that does scoliosis surgery. So we had our teen, we had a particularly large group of teens. And then also in some of our auto cases, long cases, we were having some issues. So we actually had a patient who actually had to have a skin graft done on his chin from a injury. So when you have facial injuries due to prone cases, it's something that sticks with you. When you lose hair on the back of your head, it's something that sticks with you. So not only are those things that we wanted to reduce, but those are also very visible injuries that can lead to multiple legalities or legal cases too. So we actually at different times had cut to help get people on board, would get information from our legal department as far as potential cases and what the, the cases would settle at. Wow. Wow. So there was a lot of financial implications to this as well as the quality of care issues that you were looking at, it sounds like. Well, and many times, like as you say, the, the, the quality is, you know, you, you get all these people that say, oh, is this something so we can have our magnet? Is this something so Jayco loves us kind of thing? So we always are wanting to improve quality for the patient, but sometimes you have to let everybody know exactly how this is hitting the organization if we don't maintain the quality that we need to. And so tell us a little bit about the project. Like how long did it take from when you first started working on this until you were ready to implement? And can you maybe just speak to kind of the process that you went through to get to that point? So like I said before, we kind of started in the very beginning with just identifying the standpoint that we had these issues with our prone cases and we had issues with our occipital cases. And how we identified that is through our quality group, we have what we call patient safety net. And it's basically any time that there's an injury that's found, then this form gets filled out. And anytime it's a skin integrity one, then it would go to the WOC nurses. So we would go see the patient, we would stage the patient, we would follow up on the patient. So since the standpoint that we were finding these two different groups of people, we'd started off with just basically nursing involved and saying, how can we actually look at these two groups or these two populations and decrease the pressure injuries that we're having with them? And so we started working with a lit review. We ended up with one of our CRNA students for a DMP project started looking at the prone cases. And the literature is somewhat a little bit out there for, you know, cases that you need to offload these areas, but for the exact products to use, the exact methods of how to put these products, where do you where do you place them? It's becoming a little bit stronger, but it wasn't when we first started working on this in 2013, 2014. So we started to identify the fact that probably most of the literature for the prone cases had to do with using a five-layer dressing to put in the key places where pressure was coming from the tables that we were currently using, which then we kind of found out that in the tables we we're currently using, nobody even knew how often pads were being changed when the last time some of these, you know, there was no dates on them. So we kind of found out through 
as you start one little piece of something, you start to find out that there's probably a little bit more that needs to be looked into than just putting some dressings on certain places on the body, but also the just the pads in general. So that led to a little bit bigger project from the financial people as far as us purchasing new pads for all of our OR beds also to kind of help with the decrease in our pressure injuries. So then we started working on that project. And at the same time, we were finding the PSNs or the forms that were being filled out on our occipital patients. And it was kind of interesting. One of our nurses that was actually on the team when we started talking about that says, well, I have a bald spot right back here. And she went back to her cardiac surgery. So we actually even had some people on the team that had had the injuries, which I think kind of brings it a little bit more home to having that that little bit stronger drive to work on a project too, when, when they either know people that something has happened to or when they've been part of it themselves. So we started looking into products that would work for offloading the occipital area. And that was a little bit harder to get in a buy-in kind of thing, just from the standpoint that that particular product was going to be a little bit more expensive. And everybody has a budget and you have to say, okay, whose budget is this going to come out of? Because all of these products are going to be single use for the patient. So, you know, we're going to be using these products and it's going to come up to a certain cost. And it actually was coming out of the OR nursing budget, which nursing always seems to take a hit when it comes to budgets and products. But from the standpoint that with our air fluidized positioning devices that we were using to offload the occipital areas, we were able to find a product that was only going to cost $39 per patient. And although that in the standpoint of adding that cost into every surgery that was going to be more than four hours really kind of looked like it was in the beginning a bigger cost. But when we took that back to our executive quality committee, you know, they really felt that that was a pretty much a bargain as far as as the amount goes and hospital administration. And that's when we kind of were talking to the legal people and they were saying, well, gosh, you know, one pressure injury that requires treatment is going to be far more than this number of cases that needs to have that. And we were also able to, with both of these sets of products, we were able to find sizes that would work for all ages of of patients. So we're always kind of having to keep that in the back of our mind that, you know, we have pediatrics and adults both in our ORs. So we have to always be looking for products that will work with the whole age spectrum as far as that goes. And so our smaller sized air fluidized positioning device that we use for our, our babies actually was only $11. So that that was not one that they anybody kind of got too upset about. And then with our prone cases, we started with actually protecting the forehead, the chin, one on each side of the chest, and one on each hip. So from that standpoint, I believe that that was about $60 worth of, of dressings. And we were already using a sacral dressing of the five layer that we had started on that project. I think it was probably 2009 when we started with that particular project. And we had already had some really good results in keeping track of our sacral pressure injuries from the OR. And 
which then led to a nice buy-in from the staff in the ORs that they had already seen anybody that was working with that particular patient population with the with the sacral dressings already knew that the the dressings did help. So we didn't have to have as much buy-in with those dressings except for the cost that we did with our air fluidized positioning devices. So beside the cost, was there other resistance from clinicians about this whole project? One thing that we had started in the beginning when we had seen the increase is we actually started photographing the patients and we had what we called kind of, for a better lack of terms, kind of a hall of shame. So we had this little bit of the hallway that let that anesthesia and the surgeons and everybody would walk past. So whenever we would have pressure injuries, we would actually put the the cases up there, the length of the cases and the pictures of the patients. So it was like our patients, the ones you're operating on, you can kind of see that that there is an issue because every surgeon wants to tell you that I've never had a pressure injury because I know exactly what I'm doing when I position my patients in the OR. And then also every time there was an injury, then information was sent to the OR nurses, the anesthesiologist, and the surgeon in that particular room for that day with pictures attached too. So it was being kind of reinforced. And then of course, those same emails were going to our administrative quality physician too. So from that standpoint, he was getting those cases so he could see when they were. So that that helped with us getting the buy-in from the beginning with all of our, the five-layer foam dressings. And so that wasn't as much of an issue with getting that that onto the patients. And most of the time that was the nursing staff. So that was the big group that you had to convince. The occipital pressure positioning device that we were using to, to offload the occipital area was a little bit more of a challenge with anesthesia because of the standpoint that they felt that this was going to impede their intubating people. It was going to be in their way. It was going to cause them extra issues. So we actually had to do quite a bit with that particular group with the CRNAs kind of champing that, which kind of helped with us because then when they were in a room, they could, you know, really kind of show that to the staff anesthesia anesthesiologist and kind of show them like, see, you know how you can, you know, you can actually mold out this little area over here. And then once they started using it, they actually were realizing that they could get better hyperextension of the head. And actually many times their intubation, it kind of decreased their non-accident or their accidental extubation that, you know, because things were just able to, to stay in place a little bit better. So but, you know, they would look at it, they would say that, oh, they weren't sure that they were going to use that. So we actually hosted areas with the the sales reps and they actually sent a, a company actually sent one of their clinical experts out and we would just sit outside the dining area and with some head models and some positioning devices so that they could kind of play with it. So when, you know, they were going in to get something to eat in the cafeteria or coming out, you know, it's kind of that that time of the day when you can kind of like say, hey, you know, you have a couple minutes to play with this kind of thing. So we tried to kind of really get them some time to actually play with it outside of their cases and then just starting to have it, you know, available. So the nurses would say, so then we would have these case cards come up. And then if there was going to be, we started with the 
cardiothoracic patient population. So we said, you know, anytime that you're going to have a case that's going to be four hours or more, then here's the size. And you know, we had the sizes laid out according to the size of the patient. And then the nurse would have that in the room already and say, hey, would you like to use this? And then we were able to, because it's a single patient item, then it went on to them with them to the floors. And the floor nurses really liked having the availability of these positioning devices in the ICUs to kind of help with the patient postoperatively too. So Laura, how did you manage to educate your entire institution about all these changes that you were making? We actually started meeting with some small groups. In our ORs, we have um, charge nurses for each block. Um, So like the orthopedic block and the cardiothoracic block. And so we, we started with those nurses. And actually, the nice thing about our ORs is on Mondays and Tuesdays, that very first hour of the morning, they block out for education. So our ORs don't start until 8.30 instead of 7.30. And so we were able to actually go in there with mannequins and actually have them practice. And then we had the We'd help from the sales force that they actually came in and we had some of them in the ORs actually helping with getting the cases started. So, so we had some, you know, real live people there in addition to the WOC nurses and our nurse educators from the OR. So they kind of, so the WOC nurses and the nurse educators from the OR and we have them in the ambulatory surgery center. We had two of them in the main OR and one of them in the children's hospital. So we started with working with them with the the charge nurses. And then the charge nurses, once they really felt like they knew what they were doing, then we rolled that out with the sales reps actually being in the ORs along with the nurse educators. And we kind of looked at our schedule ahead of time and kind of were planning to start, you know, on days that we actually had good cases to be using the products with. So we were rolling it out and getting that hands-on. And then we came back about six months later with the sales reps and with the nurse educators. And again, in those hours on the Mondays and Tuesdays that they have for their whole staff to come for education. So we went back in and re-infused. We you know, from the the Iowa model, whenever you're looking at evidence-based practice and kind of bringing that in, you not only have to do your first line, but you have to come back and kind of re-educate. And then we came back at the end of a year and re-educated again. And then, of course, people get this information in their orientation and then also in their hands-on training for their skills, their yearly skills lab. And then what about the rest of the organization? So, for example, you said that the ICU nurses really liked the occipital positioning devices. How did you get the word out everywhere else that all these changes were going on in the OR? We actually did that. At the time when we brought the sales reps in, we actually brought them to all of the ICUs along with the ORs. So they, you know, at times when they when there weren't things for them to do in the ORs, we had them out on the floors, actually educating the ICU nurses. And our ICUs are all kind of, you know, usually like a two or three bed pod kind of thing so that they would go in to each pod. And so we went through the ICU nurses at that particular time. And then 
with the floor nurses, we had been doing a big campaign as far as identifying pressure injuries when somebody hits your floor. So doing that, you know, head to toe assessment when you get somebody from the OR or admission. And so we had been working very diligently with the floor nurses to fill out these patient safety nets or these reports whenever they would get somebody onto their unit that would have a pressure injury. Because, you know, we were through the NDNQI quarterly surveys, we were, you know, that we already do with the, all of the floors, everybody is trying to, you know, keep their numbers to zero as much as possible. So it's kind of like, okay, if you don't identify that this came from the OR, then this is going to your floor. So the floors had a big kind of pride thing in, in standpoint of keeping their numbers as close to zero as possible. So they had this extra drive to, I don't want to say blame somebody else, but I mean of, of, of not taking a pressure injury onto their floor. So, so from that standpoint, they were, they were already pretty much engaged in wanting to do things that would prevent pressure injuries when somebody hit the floor, but also identifying them as they came to their, their particular units. So that, I think, really helped us kind of keep them engaged. And like I said, the ICUs really like the positioning devices. And we actually use them to offload other areas. I mean, sometimes we're using them to offload heels. Sometimes we're offloading sacrum. So even if that person doesn't need it for the occipital area, they can use it, you know, for offloading other pressure points while they're in the ICUs. And I think that's what, you know, kind of gave them something that was a little bit, you know, kind of a, a tool that was for multiple purposes. And they liked it from the very beginning. And it was a win for them because if they came from the OR with one of them, then it wasn't their unit that paid for the device either. So it was kind of a win-win that those were coming from the OR with people. And then I will have to say our CVICU and our pediatric ICU actually started getting the positioning devices. They were using those sometimes in their very sick patients before they went to the OR. So they actually got on board of making sure that when they sent somebody to the OR, if they already had one that they were using for them, that that went with them. And they had already been kind of engaged in using the sacral dressings and making sure that when they were sending somebody to the OR for a long case that they were putting those on before they left their unit too. So so we had a little bit of an advantage, I think, of the, the units being a little more engaged in products than what the OR. So, which then actually, as part of this project, translated in us trying to get rid of the foams, the rolled up towels, and all of the other positioning kinds of products that you can use that aren't really, were never really made for positioning somebody in the OR, which led to us being able to actually look at new types of gel rolls and things like that, that we were able to get enough of those to put in the room. So in addition to our five-layer foams and new padding for the tables, then we also moved on to these new new gel pads in different configurations so that, you know, that you could support the patient in no matter what position that you were in. And that was probably our hugest battle that we faced in all of this because of the standpoint that the surgeons 
although we had plastic surgery on board with getting rid of some of the pink foams and these rolled up towels and IV bags and those kinds of things that people were using. Many of the surgeons had been using those kinds of products for years and were a little more reluctant to say, you know, we need to look at using something else, which then led to us writing a whole policy on positioning devices that can be used in the ORs. And that I will have to say that we're probably, you know, still getting a few people on board with that. But we actually went because of our reports that we write every time there's a there's an injury in the OR, we were able to start looking at some other positioning things like our beach chairs and things like that. So, you know, you kind of as you start to fix, you know, like the prone cases and you start to fix the the cardiac cases with the occipital areas, then you start to identify other body areas or pressure areas that are being injured in the OR. And then we were able to start looking at those position, you know, those particular positioning. And like I said, we had kind of this beach chair, you know, and some of our shoulder surgeries and things that we were finding that we had different areas that were being affected. So if you were in a certain type of case, then maybe those five layer dressings need to be on different body parts. And so kind of establishing all of those different positioning devices to use was you know, kind of, is kind of our ongoing project that we're, you know, working with now too, and just getting everybody on board with getting rid of them. And part of that, just make sure that you have the devices you want them to use readily available in the room. So they're easy to pull and, and position the patient and not have the availability of the towels and some of the other things that they want to use instead. Yeah, it seems like, uh, at least in our ORs, they were always concerned about the time in the OR. And so they didn't want to be spending extra time finding things because then that impacted the next patient and all that kind of stuff. So that's a great idea. And then I don't remember if I saw this on the poster now, but did you have like specific scoring tool that you used or specific criteria as far as who got the foam? Like, for example, was it related to the length of time of the case or did just everybody get it? Or how did that all go, Laura? That's a great question. In the very beginning, we started by looking at the length of case. So we were saying that, okay, if your case was scheduled for four hours or more, then we needed to look at our positioning devices and making sure that you had the five-layer foams in the correct place or the air fluidized positioning devices were there in the room. So that became just part of their, they have these little cards that, you know, so for this particular surgery, we need this equipment. And so that just became part of, of those. And then we kind of found that we were still having some skin injuries and we really kind of felt that well maybe a surgeon would say this was going to be a four-hour case so he could get three cases in the room that day but knowing that you know some of them were going to go a little bit longer so we actually went back through our cases and decreased that from four hours to three hours so we changed our practice after about probably eight to ten months of doing the four hours we would still find some injuries so we stepped it back to three hours, which made a huge difference. And and I think part of that was just because we weren't maybe always looking at what was going to end up being the time that anesthesia to put the line, get the person to sleep, put the lines in, 
and the OR case itself. So it wasn't, you know, our cases were actually, that four-hour case was actually more than that. And probably our three-hour cases from start to finish are, you know, over three hours and probably encroaching on that four hours. So we did change the time of that. The other thing that we found that we needed to also look at is that, again, because we have a a wide variety of age groups, is that not always the standard placement of for our prone cases was necessarily where that particular body was hitting the table. So we started having, in our pediatric population, we were having some injuries at the knees. Everybody's iliac crests were beautiful, but the knees were the problem. And so when you start looking at where that, so people had to kind of keep in mind, where do your, where does your table break? You know, where would the, the padding not be adequate on that particular table with that particular patient? And then also with our obese patients of just giving people the opportunity to go bigger with sometimes with the foam dressing. So sometimes what we would might use, you know, on the chest was, was basically a smaller sacral dressing versus an oval flex, you know, kind of thing. So you may have to change looking at the body habitus of that particular patient, where they hit the table as far as maybe readjusting where you're going to be placing your foam dressings. Right. So really individualizing that placement to the patient's body dimensions instead of just the standard. There's a high percentage where the standard, you know, placement works just fine. But that was what we were finding when we were still, when we would go back to a case where we had an injury, then we'd say, okay, we'd start to look back at that patient and start to identify that, oh, and so when they do have larger patients in the room, then they do have access to all these different sizes in the room of the five-layer silicone foam dressing. So they could, I mean, they can ask for different sizes if they want to. The other thing that we found with our Epic, and this can be any electronic medical record, is that the pre-op and the post-op didn't really communicate with another. So we were finding that the nurses, when they would get somebody back to the floor, didn't see what position the patient was in or whether or not they did that they had done any of these, used any of these dressings or positioning devices with the patient. So we actually made some changes on Epic so that then when a patient comes back to the floor or comes to recovery area, they can easily see what position the patient was in and whether or not any of the dressings were used so that then if we are filling out a report, we can easily kind of look at that data. We can find that data very easily. And um, and then we can go back and say, oh, you know, why did this pers- person, you know, not get the dressings? Well, maybe it was because it was slated for two hours and then went six hours, you know, kind of thing. So sometimes that may be what the reasons was. But there was, you know, those little tweaking things that you kind of find as you start working through something that sometimes Sometimes our medical record kind of hinders us versus helps us with things. So then in, in your organization, the patient would have the foam dressings removed at the end of the case versus leaving them on until they were more mobile postoperatively, like once they got to your unit? With any of the prone cases, we as soon as they are turned and put on their, their cart that they're going to be transported to the recovery area, 
yes, they take all of those dressings off. If they were put on as a, a sacral, like if we had a sacral dressing, that would be left on because the person would be, you know, supine back in recovery room. So they would, would leave that on until they got to the floor. And then the floor would take off the dressing so that, well, they would at, at least pull back the dressing so that they could observe. But if they were going to be in an inpatient, then they would, if it was a sacral dressing, then they would put that back down. So they would just look at the area and do their assessment, but then stick it back in place. Okay. Okay. So I really want to know, how do you get people to fill out those incident reports? That seems to be a struggle for many of us in our organizations. And it's so important to get good data, but hard to get it when people don't really like to fill those reports out. What, what hints do you have for our listeners about that? First of all, we, we preach on a daily basis that these incident reports or, or safety reports, whatever you want to call them, are never going to be punitive to the person filling them out. So, you know, we kind of say we'd rather see a hundred than none kind of thing. So don't, you know, if you have any doubts, you know, fill these particular ones out. We also, in the beginning, when we started using the new products, we said, you know, this is how, you know, this is how we pay for these things. You know, it's that, you know, if you want better OR tables, if you want, you know, better positioning devices, you know, if we're having, if we're having a problem with what we're using, the only way for us to, you know, to convince hospital administration and the finance people is to show them that, first of all, to show them that we have a problem and then we can take the literature and our plan to them and then they can see what the cost of, of fixing the problem is going to be. And then when, you know, we, you once you get people really working hard about filling them out, then that seemed to actually flow much better into, you know, then we can, you know, show them that now we can say, okay, well, look at your, even some of the different OR groups, we can say, okay, look at, you know, the neurosurgery room versus the orthosurgery room. You know, you guys are, you know, we can see from the electronic medical record that you guys are putting the dressings on. We can see that you guys are not having, and on a monthly basis, we re look at all of the skin integrity incident reports or, or safety net reports that are, and then those go back to those particular areas so that they can see what their improvement is, that that we're, you know, we're not having the injuries that we were having before. We can track that over time for each particular area within the OR. And so, of course, then that goes up in their staff meetings too. So they, you know, everybody has that kind of thing like, oh, yay, we're going to give some stars to, you know, and some kudos to the ortho block this month, you know, because they didn't have any injuries and that they were doing what they were supposed to be. But then also, you know, I think that everybody really does realize that this is how change happens. This is, you know, because many times in the very beginning, you know, the nurses were saying, well, the physicians aren't believing in this, you know, and we can say, well, look at, you know, they can see now that with, that we've got the improvement that we wanted to have. So they're, they're pretty good at that. And then, like I said, too, if we, if we miss some occasionally from the ORs, the floor is pretty good about filling them out because, of course, they want to make sure that people realize that this wasn't caused on their watch. So if we do run into that, and then we can go back to the particular area in the OR, you know, if if we are finding that now we're getting some 
we're getting a little uptick in the numbers of reports that are being written on the floor, but not when they're coming out of the OR. So either they weren't noticing it when they were coming out of the OR, or we've got a small group of people that are not feeling comfortable about writing them up. And we can go back to that particular group. The other thing that we've been trying to do is just build that trust between the WOC nurses and the ORs. Like, you know, we're not out to point out what they're doing wrong. We're just, we're there to kind of help them. And so we have a new project that we've started in the last year and a half is actually picking some days and going into the OR and helping them with positioning and to say, you know, I was in the OR the other day and we had this young, well, she was an old teenager, but she had a lot of contractures and they were wanting to put her prone. And we're like, oh, really? How do you think that body is going to lay prone, you know, kind of thing. But that's the way the surgeon wanted it. So just even kind of us coming to their world and seeing, you know, it's not always easy to get people in the position that you want them in and padded too. So, so we're, you know, kind of learning from each other also. So I think that that has helped us build kind of a trust that we're not there to penalize them. We're there to figure out ways that we can make things better for the patients. What would you say is the most surprising thing you learned throughout this whole project? Was there, was there anything that kind of shocked you? I think that the one thing that has shocked us is that in the beginning, I think that the anesthesia was so, this is going to take us more time. You know, this is, they were really reluctant to using the positioning devices. They felt they were too hard to work with kind of thing. And now we've got several anesthesiologists who are now becoming almost skin champions for us. I've I got a call last week from one of the anesthesia people saying, oh gosh, you know, the last time, because he'd remembered I was in there when we were trying to, trying to position this prone child and young adult. And he said, oh, you know, you were such a helpful help with that person the other day. Could you, could you come back to my OR and help me on such and such a day with this other patient that was coming up? So the standpoint that they're actually wanting our help and feeling that there's an importance to it. So I, I think that that was, that was a group that was so kind of anti-working with us in the beginning and now I think has kind of come around to the standpoint that they're wanting our help. Or we had one of the anesthesiologists, well, actually he's a CRNA, but he had called me the other day and said, oh, you know what, I convinced somebody to use, you know, one of your little positioning devices on their patient that had to be turned and we cupped it up underneath and he was explaining how they had kind of cupped an area out for the ear. And the last time he'd done this same case with this this person that they had a red ear when they came out of the OR. And so he goes, I showed him how to, the surgeon, how to use this. And so they're they're actually kind of proud of the learning that they have and their engagement in using some of the products to the fact that they're actually, we were having some issues with tegaderms being taped over eyes and actually having skin tears. So they've actually, you know, been asking for, well, what do you have? A, what, what kind of product do you have in your bag that would work for this or work with that? So them, you know, they're actually asking for not only just pressure relief, but other ways that we can maintain skin integrity. And we were able to go with a silicone back tape, which they ab- absolutely love for taping their eyes now. So I think that was kind of the interesting thing is when Whenever you get the naysayers, if they're kind of a solid group kind of sticking together, 
whenever they kind of come around and get on board, and if especially when they get on board, they get a little bit, you know, when they get kind of zealous about it and, and wanting to, you know, see other other places that they can improve, then then you kind of think like, oh, yes, we are making a difference. Somebody's listening to us and, and they want our advice. Mm-hmm. And they're taking it, which makes it even more exciting. Yeah, they're taking it. Yeah, great. And so how have you managed? It sounds like this is still fairly labor intensive. What else are you doing to sustain this practice change? It sounds like it was a huge change and it was throughout your organization. And sometimes it seems like it's harder to maintain these changes than it is to actually implement them in the first place. So what do you think about that, Laura? Well, I would have to say that an, a different article that I had been working on, we started reading not the whole thing about knowledge translation and actually moving something from everybody knowing that it's great practice into actually becoming a cultural change and then actually becoming a change that's, that becomes a standard and sticks with things. And some of the knowledge translation literature I read was a little depressing because Sometimes it was saying that could be, you know, 10, 12 years to, you know, actually get something where it's maintained all the time. It becomes, you know, second nature to somebody. And I was kind of shocked about that when I read about it. But I think that we all realize that in nursing, there's kind of a high turnover and you have, you know, new nurses that come in and you're always trying to trying to kind of make sure that get them to that same level of expertise as what some of your established people are. And then nursing, we're all getting older. So, you know, we've got this, our our great area of expertise is kind of dwindling it in some places. And we particularly here, I think, have a lot of really young nurses, but they're not always, how should I put it? It, it? It's something that, you know, that you run into different generations of how they learn. And I think that we're learning that we have, we're doing things with what we call icons, which they're little videos that they actually view online to check off as their competencies. So sometimes we have, we have to kind of look at the generation that we're working with and how they best learn. So it's always going to be some hands-on. It's always going to be some electronic kinds of, of learning. And then also what, what saves you the least amount of time. So we continue to look at what we call competencies. And that's kind of a, a yearly program that all of our staff go through. And so part of that is online just with pressure injury prevention. And so that it's an online little course that they listen to with, with questions, you know, that little test post test at the end. And then there's always a skill component to our competency tests and all the staff have to go through that. So we're building the threads of new products as we have them go through through that, but then just re-energizing them with the hands-on yearly competencies. And then we also, I think as we've been, as the WOC nurses have been, you know, kind of taking turns going to different rooms in the ORs and stuff too, I think that just sometimes our presence just kind of kind of helps with that. And then we have what we call skin champions. So we have actually, we started with just having representatives from the inpatient units, but now we actually have outpatient units and we actually have the ORs and the recovery rooms included in that group too. So that's a monthly meeting. So where these champions that 
can take any in new information back to their units and distribute it through their nursing intranets or their little newsletters so that we can have kind of little tidbits that go back to them on a on a monthly basis that are designed by their skin experts. And we also have nurse anesthetists and some of our hospitalists and PT, OT, and RT that are all part of our skin champion. So making our skin champion network a little bit wider as far as the different disciplines that are coming to that so that they're taking back that information to the appropriate areas and adapting the information that we have at our meetings to the practice on their particular units. Wow, that's great. And is there anything that you would have done differently now that you look back at all this? Or if you were if somebody were asking you that was going to try and implement a program like you have there, is there anything that you might have done differently now that you think about it and look back at it? I think that we all agreed that we didn't get the surgeons on board as early as we should have done. And that was a group that I don't think we probably went back to frequently enough from the standpoint of especially when we were building the whole positioning, the new positioning policy. Although we felt that we were going kind of slowly and we were taking it to those groups and getting feedback from the group, it's still when the when we actually started using the policy itself and people were not finding the other positioning devices that they wanted to, you know, in the OR and people wanting to give them others, you you had this kind of like, well, how did this happen without us knowing anything about it kind of thing? And well, it it didn't happen without you not knowing about it. We can tell you there were lots of emails that went out. We went to every surgical specialty group. So like, you know, we went presented to the neurosurgeons and to the orthopedics physicians. And, you know, we went to their monthly meetings and presented to them and took feedback from them. And, and we could actually show them where we put their feedback into the new policy, the positioning policy and stuff. But like I said, we had a plastic surgeon that was our physician champion as part of the, the group. But maybe we should have had, you know, a couple more physicians, although physicians are a hard group to get to come to regular meetings. But the quality physicians that we had, you know, that were really on board and invested, you know, weren't necessarily the OR, you know, weren't on in the OR on a regular basis. So as we got anesthesia on board, I think that we should have incorporated the surgeons a little bit better in that process than what we did. And I think that when we started rolling out some of the new products and stuff that they would have, you know, maybe they would have been a little more accepting than than we were because we had to kind of we kind of had to backtrack with that group and start over with presentations and things even though they they had had them and physicians changed too and and then also they're kind of used to like when they want a certain product that they can have what they want and right so they're not a group that's used to being told no so <laughs> you know <Yes. laughs> when something wasn't available then you had somebody you know throwing a throwing a fit, but I think that was probably the group that we didn't engage as well as what we could have. Our anesthesia group, they actually have, the anesthesiologist actually, the residents as they go through the program, have to do a quality thing. So whatever residents are part of the quality that month, they attend our OR happy group. And we, we probably could have done that with the surgeons groups because 
they have to do quality work too. And if we had maybe pulled some of their residents while they were doing their quality into the group, that might have been a way to kind of elicit maybe a little bit more of their input and make sure that the communication was there. All right. And what else should I ask you? Is there anything that you think is important for our listeners to know that maybe I haven't mentioned? We kind of talked a little bit about the standpoint that we've had in, invaluable help from Linda Abbott, who's our, who's the quality person. And at our institution, we were very lucky that the person that's doing the quality is actually a WOC nurse too, which not everybody probably has at their institution. But she has been invaluable as far as keeping up on the data, the reports. She goes, she actually looks at all the skin integrity data every day, which not every institution has that ability, but she looks at it every day and makes sure that, especially if there's anything that's from the OR or potentially from the OR, that she also kind of makes sure that the WOC nurses have, have seen that report. Because sometimes as she goes through, she'll read through all of the reports and sometimes they weren't actually keyed in as a skin integrity. But when she reads through it, she can see that that definitely what it was. And so she's good about, you know, changing those over to skin integrity reports and making sure that we get them out to us. Also, have just started something new as far as working with our star groups, as far as giving them some added kind of working with them as as helping them to establish themselves as change agents. So we've had some chain agent training that we've been having our, again, we're kind of lucky here at some of our resources that we have, but Laura Cullen, who actually heads our program for the Iowa model and for the, just as far as looking at establishing evidence-based practice and following that, she actually has been working with a lot of staff as far as helping them kind of understand their role as a as a change agent so that they feel more confident. And so through our STAR committee, we're going to start working with different ways that we can actually every month look at projects that their particular units can work on that maybe would help them to prevent pressure injuries. And we're going to start doing this little at each meeting, what we call a little PIP discussion at the beginning of each meeting. So we'll actually have people from the groups say, you know, talk about pluses that they're seeing on their units, something that they, they've started working on that, that has helped, which will help with the ORs too. And then the, in PIP, the, it'll be pluses, ideas, and problems or concerns. So we'll just kind of start each meeting with that so that people kind of have that in the forefront of something that they can be doing on their units on a regular basis, which then in the ORs would be on their particular block that they can be doing to kind of keep in reinfusing the education, keep looking at, you know, where we have places that can need to be improved, helping people to remember to fill out the forms that they need to. So just having that as kind of a little discussion group at the very beginning is something that we're going to that is a new project for that was kind of beginning at, at the end of 18 and will be our kind of force as we go through 2019. Will you just clarify what that STAR means? It's a skin team advocate and resource. 
Okay. Um, so there actually are our champions, our skin champions from each unit. So every every unit, and then including the ORs, well, we have two champions from each unit, and this is peds and adults, and we have a monthly, and they're part of our shared governance group, and they're a committee within the shared governance, and it is chaired by myself and Julia Langen, who's the coordinator for the adult program, and then we have pediatric and an adult staff nurse co-chair. So there are monthly meetings where we look at things that we need to change, how we can improve our prevention program and and identify projects that need to be done in different areas of the hospital. This is also the group that does the quarterly NDNQI surveys on the units. So that's kind of our, like I said, our, our skin champions are people that kind of are the eyes and the ears out on the, the units. Because I think that no matter how many times administration, leadership, or just even us as being the WOC nurses are talking to the floors, if they have staff nurses working beside them that are saying, oh, we need to get the premium under pad. We need to get, you know, this person, you know, turned. We need to get them on a different surface. You know, when you have that person that comes in to, to help you walk your patient and say, where are their productive dressings? You know, how come they don't have something on their heels or, you know, where are their boots? Those kinds of things. That's really where you sustain change over time, I think, is having that bedside nurses really believe in all of the pressure injury prevention that you're doing and that they actually are doing those preventative kinds of things and the other staff nurses see that. So it's somebody walking the, doing the talk and walking the walk with you that sustains that change over time. Well, great. And thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate your taking time out of your busy workday to speak with me today. And I know our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing about this wonderful project that you've implemented there. Well, thank you for having us. And like I said, it's, you know, we can always make improvements. And also, oh, I didn't mention either the fact that one of the issues that we were still finding in the ORs for with our long cardiac cases is that we were still having some, despite our sacral dressings, we were still having some sacral injuries. And we really feel that, you know, some of these people are in pumps for a period of time. Some of them then crash ECMO or code during their, their cases. And so in our ability to go to WLC meetings and see what other people are doing, we are actually going to start instigating for our long cardiac cases, actually using a extra cushion under the sacrum, the waffle cushion like Stanford and UC Davis are using at this particular point. So we've been working with the other nice thing about the WOCN is that we're all big friends. And so we, you know, we start to see somebody else doing something that's working and we can call them up and say, hey, how did you do this? How did you get it in? And so that's our next project. So as, you know, like I said before, those nurses that fill out those forms can show us that, you know, we still have different areas to improve upon. And then we can find out from our colleagues our best way to, to go about improving and instituting new things as they come out. Well, I hope we see a poster about that project in the future, Laura. Oh, I, I think we will. <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. 
Please visit WOCN.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's WOCN.org slash podcast. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. Walk Talk.